To be killed rather than kill is Arjuna's plea. Or far better to leave the battlefield and take to the life of renunciate or a sannyasi. To both these, the teacher gives a stern negative. Arjuna's dilemma is our dilemma. Arjuna's problem is our problem. But the Gita does not give the obvious and easy ethical solution. The Gita does not tell us how to evade the bull which is rushing at us with lowered horns, but it tells us how to catch it by its horns and make it our vehicle for our march to eternity. It tells us how to effect a resolution between the higher aspirations of our spiritual ideals and the horrifying actualities of our outer life. We try to compromise and become spiritual half the time and materialistic the other half. And we carry on in this unsatisfactory fashion, hopping from one standpoint to another all our lives. But such a progress can never be fully satisfactory, nor is a compromise a final solution. The solution can only lie in finding that reality in us which encompasses all these differences and yet transcends them. The Gita's solution to the problem is from the highest spiritual angle and not from the surface ethical point of view. The highest spiritual angle means knowing and experiencing that spirit which is the supreme reality in us as well as in the cosmos and serving him through all the activities of man's intellect, heart, and will. Only then can we solve the riddle of life. The secret of action, according to the Gita, is one with the secret of all existence. Life is not lived for the sake of the body, but for God and the living of man is an eternal portion of that Godhead. Existence is not just a blind machinery of nature, but the constant manifestation of the spirit. Action is for self-fulfillment and not for the apparent fruits of the moment. Arjuna was born and brought up in the Kshatriya caste. Physically and mentally, nature had made him fit to rule. So Arjuna, says the Lord, you have a duty to the world, you have a duty to the society, 
and you have a duty to the deeper self within you which pervades the entire cosmos this duty is your swadharma and only in the clear performance of it will you evolve and help society to evolve and thus achieve the universal purpose if lord krishna allowed arjuna to give in to his emotional and run away from the battle what would be the state of his spiritual life arjuna in the forest would still be arjuna the warrior though physically he might have restrained himself yet mentally his mind would be ever with the scene he had fled from the patent new duty which he had neglected and the guilt of having condemned his people to a lifetime of the under the rule of the tyrant Duryodhana far from taking an upward path his spiritual life would plummet downwards true to his nature he would never be able to find peace and contentment in the seclusion of the woods leading the life of a recluse Another point to be remembered is that Arjuna's refusal to fight did not stem from a strong rebel towards the taking of life or a strong turning towards ahimsa or non-violence. He was not a conscientious objector. He was the hero of many battles in the past. and he would as easily continue to be the terror of all evil doers in the future left to himself if today he was unable to face the battle the reason was to be found not in a change of his ideology but to his emotional attachments to his relations his case is like the judge who had been condemning many people to capital punishment without a thought of the evils of such a system who one day is confronted with his own son who has been charged with murder of the first degree now we that the judge starts spouting the qualities of mercy he insists that the system of capital punishment was a crime and should be abolished from the entire country etc the judge has had no change of heart and would just as happily send any other father's son to the gallows as he has been doing all these years but today he has desisted from the performance of his duty 
purely because it happened to be his own son. And in order to mask this weakness, which he recognizes as weakness, he bolsters up his case with the ethical arguments of humanitarianism, mercy, and kindness. In such a case, according to the Gita, the only spiritual action is a stern adherence to one's duty, regardless of one's an emotional preference and attachment. Now let us consider the spiritual evolution of the citizens of the land whom Arjuna had to protect. If Arjuna desisted from the fight, for whatever reasons, the battle would not be fought and they would be thrown once more in the hands of the tyrants they abhorred. Their state would be pitiable indeed, unable to sue the laws of dharma of their calling, their spiritual life would be totally in abeyance, as can be seen from the history of all peoples in the thrall of despotic rule through the ages. So Arjuna would be guilty of a double crime by running away. Lastly, what about the state of the enemies, his cousins, the Kauravas, headed by Duryodhana? The had led a life of unbridled passion and violence. No one had ever tried to curb his arrogance from childhood. He had soared from crime to crime. If unchecked, his life was a sure regress from man to beast. Being a Kshatriya, his only hope of salvation was death in the battlefield as befitting hero. So even when looked at from the standpoint of the Kauravas, it was Arjuna's bounden duty to fight and uphold the cosmic law and allow himself to be used as an instrument in order to fulfill the cosmic plan. As has been mentioned before, Arjuna's objection to killing did not arise from a violent revulsion to all killing such, but only from the killing of his own relations. This is no doubt a natural and human consideration, but the purpose of the teacher of the Gita is to raise the disciple above the attachments of his body to a far higher state of spiritual relationships. Love for one's relations is no doubt one step 
in the evolutionary but it is far from being the last one man's mind clings weakly to some type of relationship he feels good and secure if he is near his mother father brothers sisters and if not at least his own butcher his baker his doctor his lawyer and above all his banker these relationships are what a sense of security in his own community and their lack makes him feel strange and insecure in a foreign country but when we analyze the nature of these relationships we find that they are ephemeral and afford a very poor basis for lasting security your relations let you down your friends desert you your lawyer fails you your doctor washes his hands of you and the stock market having crashed your bank no longer can save you from the horrifying specter of disease and death so what use are these relationships on which we bank our entire happiness they are pitiable props indeed and merely act as a hindrance to our spiritual progress the teacher of the gita takes arjuna to a height from which the true meaning of relationship emerges not that we should shun our relations but that we should so enlarge our narrow vision that we can embrace the whole world as being related to us from the heights of spirituality the judge would find it as impossible to condemn another man's son as he would his own son that is true love or else we can go to the other extreme and shun relationships and accept only one relation namely god who is our father mother guide friend husband sweetheart or anything else we might choose to see him as one who has established this relationship with god needs no relation in the material world with a little analysis we will find that both these viewpoints though seemingly opposite are actually identical to see god as our only relation is to see everyone and everything as our relation for god is in everyone and in every creature and this is the great truth which lord krishna needs arjuna to accept towards this ideal does he steer him forward 
as masterfully as he guided the restive horses. That Arjuna has to do his duty has now been made clear. The knowledge has been given, but the teacher would not be true to himself if he did not give a practical guidance as to how this duty, fraught with difficulty, should be done in order to gain the highest. This is why the Gita is also called Yoga Shastra or the practical application of Vidya, the sign of the Absolute. Even a little of this yoga of action will save you from great fear. That is the promise of the teacher. We are all afraid of many things, of sin, of suffering, of hell, of punishment, of God, of the world, and of even our own selves. This is the great fear which besieges humanity, the fear of a world of whose true nature it is of a God whose true being it has not seen, and of a cosmic purpose which it doesn't understand. The creed of the Aryan fighter is to know God, know himself, and to help mankind, to protect the right without fear or faltering in the battlefield of the world. Arjuna, the flower of Aryan manhood, has been given the supreme knowledge that he is the eternal and imperishable, that life and death are but two sides of the same coin, that sorrow and suffering are to be disregarded, for they are only the reactions of the senses to the realities of the world. Fight he must when by destruction the world has to advance, but without hating that which he has perforce to destroy, nor grieving for those who perish, knowing that the one immortal is in everything. He should do his duty, his swadharma, with a calm, strong, and equal spirit. For that is the action which God and his own nature has given him to accomplish. In the words of the Gita, treating alike pain and pleasure, gain and loss, victory and defeat, get ready to fight. Fighting thus, you will not incur sin. The 47th verse of the second chapter contains the central idea of the famous Gita doctrine of Karma Yoga. Karmane Adhigarasti Ma Bhalesh Kadajana Your right is to the work alone and not to the fruits therefore. Therefore, 
do not have desire for the results of the action, nor should be attached to inaction. At first sight, this appears to be an impossible command, or at best only suited to a madman. For who else but a madman would do an action without consideration for the fruit? On further analysis, however, we find that this command of Lord Krishna's is the only answer to a perfect action. In this lies the secret of perfect action, to work without expectation of fruits is something which the modern mind cannot grasp because we are already sunk in the mire of expectation of fruit even before the tree has been planted. We are always after the rights we can expect from the world and oblivious of the duties we owe to it. Lord Krishna, on the other hand, states categorically that we have only one right, and that is to do our duty, to do our sadha, and then automatically we will gain our rights. The very forces of nature will see to it that we get our rights, since we are performing our swadharma, our part in the cosmic drama, without hope of reward. Maybe we will find this hard to swallow, for one who has not actually experienced this phenomenon will find it hard to accept, since we have the theory that might is right and the survival of the fittest is the law of the world. This law may be applicable to the lower orders of creation, but in the higher orders, and in man in particular, it is this very law which is condemning the civilization which he has so painfully built up. This is the law of the jungle, and nature would have man liberate himself from this law. She would have man act in such a way that willfully and consciously he will produce a perfect action. Now let us see what a perfect action should be. It is an easily seen fact that so long as we are obsessed by the fruit of action, we will not be able to produce the best actions that we are capable of. The action itself takes second place, and the fruits are of primary consequence. It follows then that the action need not be done as well as it could be done. In fact, it can be skipped altogether if we could catch hold 
of the fruits in some other manner. The classic example of this is the student to whom the results are more important than his studies and who proceeds to cheat in the examination, to bribe papers and to buy the papers and use any underhand method in order to gain the results. How does this benefit him spiritually? Even materially, how does it benefit him? He may get a diploma asserting his success in the examination, but since he has wasted his time on the campus, he has absolutely no knowledge of the subject and now let us look at the fruits themselves when we undertake any action no doubt we expect the fruits but are these fruits in our hands even with the very best and sincere effort on our part it need not follow that the expected fruit will materialize. Many factors which are out of our hands go to produce the result. Action may be in our hands, but the results never. Our sorrow and suffering result inevitably from this fact that, that we expect results which never follow. We demand our right to expect our just deserts and forget the fact that we have not done our duty to the best of our ability. In fact, had we so performed it that itself would be our fruit. The action itself would be our source of joy, regardless of the consequences thereof. This is the secret of perfect action and a balanced outlook on life. This is the only sane approach to action. Take the case of the painter and the chariot. The painter paints because of the paint he will get at the completion of every picture. The artist paints because he loves to paint and he lives to paint. The former's work is trash and is condemned to be obliterated by the next picture drawn. The latter's work remains for posterity. The former is always on the seesaw of success and failure, of elation and despondency, while the latter is unperturbed by anything, deriving his joy from his work alone. We have to accept the fact 
that we are not the sole conditioning factor behind the production of the result of an action. The whole universe has something to say in the production of the result of even the least action, and we are not deciding factors. Things may or may not turn out as we expect them to be, but there is little or nothing that we can do about it. The normal reaction to the statement is that if one cannot expect the fruit, then one would rather not act at all. In order to prove the falsity of this reaction, the second part of the verse clarifies and insists that we should not be attached to inaction. The decision not to act is itself an action, and in any case, we have no choice. It is obligatory on us to act. The mighty machinery of nature would force us to act, and if this is the case, the only way out of a seemingly impossible situation would be to act in the correct manner. All actions finally are called actions, and the yoga is the equanimity we maintain during the performance of our actions, which are part of our swadharma. This equanimity accelerates the process of the action, and one becomes dexterous in the performance, like the artist. Yoga karmasu kaushalam. The more disinterested you are in the fruits, the more perfect your action becomes, and the more likely you are to get the very fruits you do not care for. This is the strange story behind successful and fulfilling action. So the true yogi is not an escapist from the world of action, nor is he an incompetent fool who has taken up yoga because of his inability to succeed in worldly life. But according to Lord Krishna, the yogi is the adept in action, and it is he who has mastered the secret of action, and therefore the secret of life. Lord Krishna is often called Mahayogi or the great yogi, and his life is clear proof of the fact that he who has mastered yoga or maintains his balance of mind in all situations can be an expert in every sphere of life. The yoga of the Gita is thus very comprehensive. 
it regards the whole of life as a yoga. The way in which we have to live in the world is itself a yoga. We have already noted that rites automatically follow the correct performance of our duty or swadharma. To ask for rights would be redundant. They who ask for rights are demanding something which they are not qualified for. They must be having a sense of guilt that they have not performed their duty properly. And that is why 90% of mankind clamors for rights. Had they performed their duties properly, there would be no occasion for anxiety about rights since they would follow without fail. Mean and pitiable is the condition of the man who begs for his rights from a world which is unwilling to give it and in the end fights for his rights and weeps for them and eventually dies for them. What a wretched state is this, says the Lord. Do your duty, O Arjuna. Fixed in yoga, do your duty. Yogastha kurukam karmani. Live like a lord, uncaring of the results which might follow. Done your duty. You can rest assured that the whole of the universe will strive to see that you gain your just reward. Why should you beg from door to door for that which is your right unless you have a suspicion that you have not done your duty and thus do not deserve the reward for which you are clamoring. Observe the loftiness of this idea, this foolproof scheme for a perfect life. If man could but follow it, what a beautiful world we would produce. The truly wise sage who has grasped this yoga is able to break in this life itself the bondage of karma, the bondage of the body and attain release in this very birth. By taking man's attention away from the fruit of action, the Gita multiplies both his concentration as well as his joy in his, in his work. And this itself becomes a yoga. A child plays for the joy of playing. The benefit of doing exercise comes of its own accord. But the child does not think of this benefit. All his joy is in the game. Thus, to know one Swadharma and act upon maintaining our mental equilibrium 
poised in the face of dualities is both Sankhya and Yoga. The first part of the second chapter gives us in full the nature of pure being or pure existence. The second part gives the art of living, how one can apply this pure knowledge to aid us in our ordinary life so that every minute is lived in yoga in harmony with the firm conviction that we are achieving the cosmic purpose. Now there remains one more thing to be done to complete the teaching. And Arjuna's question is made an occasion to paint the picture of the perfect man of the Gita, the Siddha the man of steady intellect, the man in cosmic consciousness, the one who lives in perfect harmony with society, God and the universe. In these 18 verses, which describes the Siddha has been distilled the essence of the 18 chapters. Arjuna asks for some external signs by which such a man can be known. But the teacher's answer nowhere touches any external sign. The first qualification of the ideal character of the Gita is that his mind has been withdrawn from the unreality of the world outside and fixed on the reality within himself. This is the first teaching of the Gita and is the first qualification of her ideal man. His mind remains unperturbed in sorrow, neither does it hunger for joy, since both are aspects of the unreal and he is fixed in the real which is beyond both sorrow and joy. He has overcome anger, attachment and fear of death. He regards the activities of the world as a passing show. So how should he be provoked to anger at this? How can he form an attachment to that which he knows to be unreal? And how can he fear death when he knows he is immortal? The ideal man of the Gita is not one who runs away from life and hides in a cave. He wanders in the world amidst the sense objects but like the tortoise, he is able to withdraw his senses from these objects as and when he wishes to, since his self-control is perfect. This is not an easy task. It is much easier to run away from the objects 
and take shape in the fastness of a mountain cave where one can avoid all contact with temptations, to leave the senses free to roam as they like, withdrawing them like the tortoise when necessary, using them when need be for the accomplishment of a higher purpose is possible only for the truly evolved soul. The Gita wisely says that by abstinence alone the senses cannot be controlled. We cannot have the senses to sub submission for they would remain docile only for the period of abstinence. The hankering would still be there though, though dormant due to lack of nourishment. And this hankering would jump to life as soon as the proper food was made available. Not to sin in the absence of temptation is easy enough, but to abstain from falling in the midst of temptation needs something more than mere self-control. It needs pure knowledge based on experience of the supreme bliss within ourselves. The hankering for sugar will persist only so long as the man has not tasted honey. Once he knows the sweetness of honey, the ordinary lump of sugar offered by the world will have no temptations for him. This is the of the Siddhapratnya's imperturbable exterior in the world. He cannot be tempted because he knows and has experienced the source of bliss within himself. Now what about the opposite picture? The man without self-discipline is like a boat on the waters, carried hither and thither by the wild winds of desire, now after one thing, now after another, with no willpower and unaware of the real purpose. After, with such a frenzied mind, how can he have peace? And without peace, how can he have the happiness for which his mind is constantly craving. So even from the point of view of material happiness, the wavering mind has to be harnessed to a particular goal. And from the point of view of supreme happiness, the mind has to be attached to the supreme goal. Therefore, O Arjuna, withdraw senses from this passing show of the world and fix it on the one steady point within you, the Atman. The worldly man and the sage are total opposites. What is night to one is day to the other. Daytime is the time for waking when the senses are alert and busy with their work of rushing after objects. This fruitless activity of the worldly man is the night of the stage, for his senses are withdrawn 
and may as well be asleep. To him, day is when his total being is absorbed in awake reality within him, delighting in the joy flowing from within him, totally independent of the work waking world of senses. This day of the sage might indeed be night to the sensual man, for he cannot see any point of this joy, nor does he understand from where his joy stems and is blind to the bliss in which the sage is baked. Just as the ocean absorbs and unifies all the waters that enter into it, so the mind of the Siddha remains calm whatever be the billows of passion that might buffet him. The ocean remains the same and maintains its own nature whether the rivers entering are full of mud or whether the waters are sparkling clear. The ocean is not dependent on the rivers for its waters since it is the source of all waters, nor is it disturbed by the type of water which flows to it. So also is the case of the Siddha who has tapped the source of all bliss and is therefore unconcerned with the offers of delight the worldly man falls a prey to. Our egos are like the small muddy puddles of the monsoons, inflating and expanding with the waters of praise and shrinking and drying up in the absence of adulation and applause, thirsting for the rivers of delight which stream from the world of the senses, deprived and starved when they are denied. The Siddha on the other hand, is the all-absorbing ocean of bliss. He is not an ordinary person, but a cosmic person, and his actions are not individual actions, but cosmic actions. And there is no question of his ever performing a wrong action because whatever he does is in obedience to the cosmic law and no man can judge him for his beyond human law and no man can deny him for he is the essence of all that is. He is indeed a walking God clothed in humble human form. In him nature has fulfilled herself
Premaswaru <laughs>